Вот бадавы гости еда наши. Welcome to Bread and Salt, a radio show about my Russian grandmother and my quest to find out about her life and the world that she came from. I am your host, Maria Schumann. I'm a singer, a folklorist, and a farmer from beautiful Greensboro, Vermont. Over the past four episodes, I've introduced you to my grandmother, Maria Ivanovna Degereva-Scott, also known as Masha or Babushka, who was born in a tiny village in Russia just six years before the revolution. I've read from her memoirs, from her journals and letters, explored her childhood and her early years in the U.S. in the 1940s. In this episode, though, I decided to do something different, and that's to put my grandmother's life in context. And what better way to do that than to talk to other Vermonters who also have grandmothers and grandfathers and great-grandparents and parents from that same part of the world, from Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. What better way to understand my grandmother's life and her world than to hear other people's stories of their ancestors, of other villages, other lives, so that's what I'm doing this week, and I decided to start with Plainfield's own Jules Rabin, and I met with Jules on his front porch over glasses of water on a bright late summer morning about a week ago. For those who don't know him, Jules Rabin is a philosopher, scholar, bread baker, anthropologist, He's 99 years old. Yes, he was born almost 100 years ago in 1924. And his age means that he has this perspective on the early 20th century that no one else I know has. Jules grew up in Boston. He served in the U.S. Army in the 1940s, although he didn't see combat. He graduated from Harvard in 1946 studied anthropology at Columbia, and was a professor of anthropology at Goddard College right here in Plainfield for 10 years in the 1960s and 70s. I've known Jules my entire life, although until this conversation, I'd never really had an adult conversation with him. He was always my friend's father or my parents' friend. Driving to his house to do this interview, it felt like opening a window into my early childhood. I've only been to their house a handful of times over the last 40 years, but as a young child, I went there all the time to play with my friends, his daughters, Nessa and Hannah. 
This band I passed reminded me of walks we would take. That hill over there of sled rides on winter days. This stone wall over there conjured up memories of long forgotten games and stories. So, Jules, thank you so much for meeting with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, it's easy. And in this quiet rural life, it's a nice interruption. I'm working upstairs on an endless essay, uh, which I could tell you about. Uh, and it's it's nice to have an excuse to stop the work. So you're fine here. So and also, you were once a little kid. Uh, I'm Jules Rabin. Uh, I've lived on this land in this house for between 50 and 60 years. We came up here, as the phrase goes, we came up here from New York 50 some years ago. And uh, I taught for a while at Goddard College. And my wife and I, in the course of time, and with the help of two carpenters, uh, built the house on whose porch I'm sitting now with dear Maria, who I knew first as a baby. <laughs> She's contemporary with my own kids. And uh, I remember encountering her, surely with her mother, on 2nd Avenue in New York. And you're really the reason that, uh, that I'm here right now in Vermont, because you, you got my parents to move to Vermont, right? Well, uh, I, I helped, uh, I helped make the arrangements and make the welcome, and that was no big deal. I was teaching uh, at Goddard College at the time, and that in my family, at a faculty meeting, we discussed the uh, bold idea of uh, inviting the Bread and Puppet Theater up for uh, a residence, and up they came. I'm working on a project about my Russian grandmother, and I've been reading her memoirs and her journals and learning about her life. Um, you know, she was born, and my grandmother was born in 19... Oh, sorry, 1911, yeah. you know. In what so, part of Russia? In... Well, it's like Western Central, yeah. between Moscow and Leningrad, straight between there in a tiny village. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think probably quite far away. But I'm I, I wanted to learn about other people's mothers and grandmothers of that same era, and so I thought you would, I would love to talk to you about that, about your family. Where was your family from? Uh my mother from. Lithuania, and my father from uh, White Russia. And where is White Russia? I'm sorry, I'm ignorant. Uh, uh, Bielorussia. Bielorussia. Yeah, Bielo oh. translates as white, I believe. Yeah. You, the granddaughter of Russians, <laughs> yeah. I translate for you. Thank you. Do, uh, do you know the names of the towns that they came uh, from? I know so little... And this is the tragedy that I, uh, the sad story that I can share with you, uh, 
Miss Interrogator, that <laughs> very little uh, was spoken between my parents and us children, we were five children, <clears throat> about their early life. There was a deep taboo, a deep taboo on those discussions, and I've never understood it fully. I think maybe because uh, in those years, my mother came here in her 20s, my father separately in his 20s also. They met in Boston. And uh, a question that has occurred to me time and again, sort of a model question, a question which uh, indicates the separation between my life here as my parents' uh, child. And I was born 99 years ago, so they go back far. And my mother, who was a little older than my father, was uh, contemporary, I think, as a baby with Queen Victoria, not in England, but in some uh, miserable shtetl, you know the word shtetl, yeah. little Jewish village, uh, not in uh, the capital city of, uh, that would have been Riga, I think, of Latvia, but in some forlorn, godforsaken uh, little village settlement called Shtetl. And you don't know the name of your father's village? Uh, I think that he uh, came. I was in Russia, strangely, uh, uh, my goodness, uh, how many years after they came here? Uh, 50, 60 years after they came here, I was walking on the highways of Russia, and I saw a uh, town name Stolpsi, uh, and that is a, uh, a truly Russian name because we uh, Americans can hardly pronounce it. I would spell it S-T-O-L-B-T-S-Y, and those are sounds, letters of the alphabet that we Americans don't easily pronounce uh, next to each other. But I mentioned to my father when I came back from that trip, uh, I mentioned that among, and he said, well, that was the railroad town near where we lived. And I think Jews were so forlorn. You know, it's like asking where blacks in Alabama lived in 1820. Well, they would know the name of the plant, plantation where there were slaves. Uh, uh, you know, it's funny, Maria, I had a kind of a recall this morning, partly with this interview in mind, uh, a town that my mother did mention. And you know the town would be the market town nearby because the Jewish shtetl was forlorn and foregone. It was too insignificant. Jews were not prescribed from living, proscribed, forbidden to live in most cities in Russia. A very wealthy Jew, yes, a Jewish professor, yes, could live in St. Petersburg or Moscow, but ordinary Jews uh, weren't wanted. Uh, and it's strange for me to think that your grandmother and your great-grandparents were part of that 
mass of Russian people, Russian Orthodox people, who uh, excluded my parents. Uh, and of course, it was the authorities who excluded my parents, not your mother, Masha, or her mother. But they were, uh, it's like they lived, it's, yeah, it's a little bit like, I think, your grandparents in relation to my parents were a little bit like uh, white people who lived in the South in the time of slavery mm. or Germans who uh, in the time of Hitler uh, were comfortable where they lived, sort of comfortable, uh, were were authorized to live there, and, but Jews were without authorization for practically anything. Jews were, and I don't know how much of this you know. And, I don't know much at all. Yeah, it's all new to me. Yeah, and I think your your grandmother was uh, maybe oblivious. I don't know. I mean, that happened on the side. It was central for my ancestry how Jews were treated in Russia, but maybe it was only incidental for your mother living in Russia, busy Probably. making yeah. her way in the new Soviet Union. Yeah. And I understand profiting pretty, gaining, gaining from that. Uh, Can I ask you, that while you still have it in your mind, the name of that town that your mother mentioned? Just yeah. that. It begins with N, not Novosibirsk, not Nizhny Nov Novgorod. <laughs> Those are two other. Nov New Alexander. Novoya Alexandra. Alexandra. In, yeah. in Latvia. I, Maybe. She mentioned that. Huh. She mentioned or a that. A place she went through. Perhaps. Well, she didn't travel at all. Yeah. They were like, I'm going to use a very harsh word, and excuse me for saying it, they were like <laughs> in their place and in their time in rural Russia and afraid of being kicked in the pants for walking on the same sidewalk as a Russian peasant. And also... Uh, my parents of time of uh, migration to America, I, I don't know when because they didn't know dates. My mother was illiterate. Yeah, she was. She was wow. illiterate. There was that kind of poverty. Yeah. My father had a necessity for being a Jewish boy. He had the equivalent of a third grade, as I would reconstruct it, uh, education, uh -huh. and he managed to, uh, well, he he learned uh, ritual Hebrew enough, Ach, it's, I'm not overcome with emotion, but I'm trying to find the words, yeah. uh, you've, you know about the bar mitzvah, yeah. 
That we went was... to my first bar mitzvah actually three days ago. Oh, really? I've never had been to oh. one before. You've lived in America so I, long. I know. <laughs> uh, but uh, the bar mitzvah means, and I'll tell you a funny story connection with that. The bar mitzvah means, uh, well, the occasion of the bar mitzvah is where having reached the age of 13, you will become a man, but uh, biblically that was the age at which the uh, Jewish boy, girls, girls we don't bother about. We don't bother about girls. My mother didn't learn to read because she was a girl and she didn't have to go through the bar, bar, bar mitzvah. Do you have a idea of like approximate date that your parents, that she was born, your mom? My mother, the year that she was born? My mother could tell you near what Jewish holiday. She doesn't know my birth date. Wow. Uh, what she knows is that I was born just before Passover. Wow. And that ex expresses a difference between Christians yeah. in America and Christians use the Gregorian calendar or whatever yeah. calendar. Jews dated things from the proximity to a Jewish holiday, huh. whether it was just before or just after. Those are the iron uh, means, the hard means of my mother dating my birth. What year it was didn't matter. And do you, what year do you think it was around? Uh, my mother, uh, I would say 1888. 1888, yeah. wow. Yeah. Wow. What a different, that is a real different Yeah, it was. Time. And I, it's like my great-grandmother then. Yeah, that's when your uh, Masha, your... My great lovely her mother would have that's, been born at I, the same time. I was going to say Masha's parents... Yeah. Would have been parents. Your, your, your grandmother was born in 1920. 1911. 1911. Yeah. So uh, my mother could have been her mother. Right. Yeah. So same era. And so, and were they, do you know what their parents, what your mother's parents did, what their work was? No. You don't. No. She and never I, talked about anything. She never wanted to talk about anything. But, uh, my mother was a little Victorian in her uh, pattern of modesty. Mm -hmm. And also she was embarrassed. She was embarrassed not to have had a real bathtub. Mm -hmm. She knew enough as an immigrant in America to know that how they lived in the old country was a shame. Mm -hmm. So many shameful things connected with that. Not sexual shame, but shame having to do with modesty. We didn't talk about the old country, and my mother would give a theatrical shake of her shoulders like a shudder when we spoke about the old country because mm -hmm. she connected so much shame with that. And the shame might have been personal in the case of my mother because uh, she was, uh, I think, late in a string of children and 
she never talked about her childhood. I don't know how many uncles and aunts I had in Russia. I don't know for sure. I think my mother was one of seven children, which uh, sort of accentuated the poverty in which she lived. Uh, and I don't know how my grandfather, my mother's father, earned a living mm. because she didn't want to talk about any of that. And I think it is very significant, maybe the most significant thing I can say about my mother, and maybe this is just her individuality, but I think it bleeds over to, goes over to other Jews of that time. They were once in America with bathtubs and uh, gas stoves. They were embarrassed to have lived such primitive lives. What language did she speak, or what languages did she speak? Only Yiddish. Yiddish. Yeah, and she never really gained English, gained competence in English. She was in the kitchen. My father had to go out to work. He brushed, uh, rubbed shoulders on the subway with Irishman from South Boston, uh, and also in his work he needed to, to have English. But my mother was a kitchen woman, and uh, and that was, and she was raised that way. Jews, Orthodox Jews, and I would say primitively Orthodox Jews, such as my parents were, were extreme sexists as we would say it now. The woman was good for the kitchen and to make babies. And that was my mother. Those were my mother's horizons, her children and her kitchen. Um, did she ever, I know when you would ask her specifically about family, it sounds like she, she never wanted to talk about that. But what about when she was cooking food or, or making traditional holiday celebrations. Would she ever talk about, like, oh, we did this? Yeah, indeed, like, indeed. Yeah. And the Jewish holidays were, she did talk about food in the old country. And you oh. touch on something important. Food was her language. Food was her art. Food was her justification for, uh, for existence. Food was central. And it's partly our poverty. We uh, we were a poor family. Uh, I remember finding a pay envelope of my father's when I was a kid. Uh, it was a little brown envelope. It was standard envelope, and it dates to the 1930s because uh, there was a deduction for social security. His wage. Uh, in that time, in the, I guess, mid-1930s, uh, was $20 a week, and that included work half a day on, on Saturday. And his pay was $20 for what would have been like 48 hours of work, 50 hours, something like that. And I could taste the pay envelope wonderfully 
because there was a deduction for social security and that signifies the Roosevelt administration oh, wow. sometime after 1932. Huh. So what kind of food was your mother's like favorite foods to make? Chicken. She uh, almost worshipped chicken and she would pronounce it chicken. She couldn't say cha. Uh, she would pronounce it chicken, and uh, she would say, "I don't know. Don't remember what the Yiddish word was." We had primitive Yiddish because that was our uh, language in the kitchen. Uh, my uh, father gradually acquired more English, and he could just make out a paragraph in an English newspaper. But my mother never read, and uh, and she was embarrassed by that. We kids had a phrase, she boils the hell out of it. <laughs> the uh, prime food for the Sabbath, for Shabbos, you know the word Shabbos, the prime food was chicken soup and she was queen of chicken soup. And on the side, there would be tasteless boiled <laughs> chicken. And I learned to revere chicken uh, when I left home and encountered broiled chicken, roast chicken. And that's what we make. I remember in the army, I first tasted fried chicken and that was to me a wonder. Any food <laughs> fried with batter crust on it is going to taste wonderful. But uh, we groaned a little bit at those Saturday milk. Chicken was a, uh, you know, they say that there are 60 Jewish holidays, 52 of them are the Sabbath. And we had serious Sabbath. My mother would. Uh, get into a fury of cleaning, scrubbing the floor and the back stairs. Uh, she was responsible. We, or she took responsible for the stairs going up to our third floor, floor flat. You know what flat means? It's yeah. an old term. And flat was an inappropriate term for where we Jews lived in Boston in my generation uh, throughout uh, Boston there were three-story wooden houses with wonderful porches on the front and the back and they were spacious uh, and uh, my mother would get into a tizzy and into a fury this is how she celebrated the uh, hours before the Sabbath I say celebration ironically because you could hardly uh, speak to her a walk in the kitchen. She was in a fury of desperation because she was so driven to get everything Sabbath clean. Uh, Sabbath is the queen of holidays, yeah. more important than, so I was told, I, uh, more important than Passover or Yom Kippur. Uh, and we kids, my mother had a furious temper, which she uh, showed mostly to my father. 
but we kids were worried, <clears throat> wary of her too, especially in the Sabbath preparations. And you know, it was an honor to her to wear herself to the bone. She showed her magnificence as a Jewish mother by working her ass off, cooking and cleaning, cleaning and cooking for the Sabbath. And so it was a house of terror. Uh, and, you know, there were the joy of Sabbath we didn't know. And by the time of the Sabbath meal, uh, my mother was exhausted and short of temper. And we kids, she was aggravated because we kids didn't appreciate enough how much she did for us. We would have been happy with a piece of bread and a cup of cocoa, happier if we had a good-tempered mother. Mm. But uh, she was in a fury with her life, and I think that her life was defined for her as a Jewish girl. Jews say, uh, you know, the woman is supposed to have assumed the role of queen, for Shabbos. Shabbos was the high point. Friday evening was the high point of the uh, of the week. Mm -hmm. Of the week. And with the Sabbath by some people defined as the most important Jewish holiday even though it was repeated 52 times in the year. Uh, well, she did everything for us everything for us and rendered herself a bitter, angry woman when we sat down to the joyous meal. It wasn't a joyous meal yeah. because my mother was in per perpetual anger against her life. Not against us children, but her life and her, her husband. Wow. And I think that was not a marriage of love yeah. as far as my mother was concerned. What year do you think that your mother left left Latvia then? Uh, that was well, my oldest, I would say I dated to 1910, 1912. 1912. She wouldn't know. She, she wouldn't didn't know. know those numbers. And was that, so I've done just a tiny bit of research, and it sounds like there was a, there was a lot of pogroms and... 1905. That's right. And then there was a whole bunch in the teens, 17, 18, that, 19. Yeah. But she left kind of in the middle. So in do the you middle, know yeah. What, what that was about specifically? I, what well, I think that my mother wasn't wanted. In what her are they family. Going to, yeah, my mother had, uh, as she explained it, fallen on a nail. Her eye was injured by a nail. She uh, said she didn't like to talk about the past at all. She just let out this little bit. She fell on a nail, and she didn't see a doctor. That would have been a big deal. She saw what I think was called a felcher, and I think that's much less than a present-day PA. It was a uh, local healer with a little bit of training. And I think he, uh, what could he do? 
about the eye. So she when uh, she was a child, you when think she, she was a child, oh, wow. yeah, and so uh, she had a bit of a squint, and uh, and I think that made her even less marriageable than than she was. So she was a sur- superfluous being in that family, and I think they were glad to see her gone. In so her, they, her family stayed there. Her family stayed there. Wow. She went, came alone to America. Her brother, huh, now more important biography, her brother whom she revered had come to America and because she revered and loved her brother, I think America seemed like one possibility for otherwise she was like trash in her own family. Good to wash the dishes, mm. good to get water from the well, or whatever. But uh, and and she she was in school. She had a younger sister who had guts, who hadn't had an injured eye, and was there for damaged goods as a possible bride. Uh, she had a sister who uh, did wangle the ability to read. She had a sister who could read. Made no use of it. I never heard of uh, anybody of my parents' generation reading a novel or reading a history book or anything like that. The most the men would do would be to read a a Jewish newspaper and maybe read a Shalom Aleichem story in the Jewish newspaper. Was her family then, um, were they killed in the Holocaust? Uh... We think some were, so. yeah. Did she talk about that at all? How when that happened? Yeah, yeah. and you know, this a blank, and I wonder about that, Maria, yeah. uh, because the Holocaust was life and death. I remember uh, there would sometimes come a postcard from what they my parents called the old country. They never said Russia. Maybe because of the pogroms, the word Russia was taboo Mm. in their everyday language. They spoke about the old country. Uh, And I realize that I'm uh, spilling out so much to you, a little bit I feel uncomfortable about, but it's... uh, Don't. Don't don't talk about it if it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't mean to be. Yeah, no, 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 you're not yeah. intrusive, and I'm what hardened, and I have perspective of a long life, yeah. and I also have language. I learned to speak English pretty good, <laughs> and so I can talk. So I can y- choose my words. So Yiddish was your first language. Uh, or. I'm at, was was Yiddish your I first had, language? Uh, I grew up in a household with two languages, Yiddish and English. My parents, especially when I was little, two, four, five years old, it would be pure Yiddish. And I can still speak Yiddish, although strangely, history, uh, I took German in high school, and I was trained in German when I was in the army, so I'm pretty good at German, and in fact, I can speak German better than I can speak Yiddish. Uh, 
Yeah. But at any rate, yeah, you were asking. I, I'm sorry to cut you off. I'll return to what you asked about. Uh, we grew up in a household where we children spoke English to our parents, who gradually learned passive English. They couldn't speak it, and we had passive Yiddish from them. And so you learned English from the other kids in the neighborhood or from going to school? I learned English from my three sisters. My three sisters brought me up because my mother, my mother was making pot roast and boiled chicken in the kitchen and scrubbing the back stairs uh, and scrubbing some laundry. We had a, a washing board in our house. Yeah. You know, have you ever seen yeah. an old washing? Yeah. Where did you ever see an old washing? Play, when people play instruments on them. Oh, my <laughs> God. You're such a goddamned American. A washing board is not to make music. It's to wash the clothes. But uh, gradually the mother sent uh, laundry out, but it was always what she called wet wash. It wasn't dried. It certainly wasn't pressed. Uh, she would hang it out on the back porch to save money. But the big basic washing would be done by an industrial washing machine. Somebody came and collected a bag of laundry when we were kids. Mm. Uh, Can I go back to the Yiddish? Was, yeah. your, was your father's Yiddish, even though he was from, I mean, Belarus is quite far away from Latvia, right? That's I mean, right. But it was the Yiddish that he spoke the same as the Yiddish that your mother spoke? I think so. They oh. were both Litvaks. They were both Litvaks. What's a Litvak? Uh, from the... Uh, a Litvak is literally Lithuanian. And Lithuanian Jews were certainly Litvaks. And I think the people in... I'm unclear about the geography. I think Belorussia borders on uh, Lithuania. I'm not sure. But uh, that was a language, I should say, a dialect common, I think, to both Lithuania, Lithuanian Jews, and white Russian, Belorussian okay. Jews. Okay. And I remember our upstairs neighbor, Mrs. Mall, uh, was some lady, she was gutsy and she had gusto. She had gusto. My mother was timid. And this is an important comparison. I think my mother was unwanted. Oh my God, not, not another uh, girl. Boys were prized. Girls would, they weren't quite trash. They, there was some use for them. But my mother uh, suffered extremely I think because of that defect of one eye, she suffered extremely from being female. And uh, I think that when she left and somehow got to Hamburg, Hamburg, where she took boat for America, I don't know how she did that because she was so timid and couldn't speak German, couldn't, had very little Russian. Maybe she went with the party. I don't know. We didn't talk about it. And because, how did she get the money also to go uh, on the ship? Yeah, huh? yeah. Well, wow. she was, by the time she left for America, she was in her mid 20s. Mm -hmm. And I think she went. She did work for a time, yes, in St. Petersburg as a maid. 
I think wow. Passage to America then was $20, which was an wow. enormous sum. So she left home then and went to St. Petersburg and uh, worked there. Uh, yes, for a time. I don't know how long a time. But that was her, uh, she worked as a maid or a cook. And that would have been in a Jewish family, probably. Uh, select Jews have the privilege of living in St. Petersburg. Wow. I'm curious what you think. Um, I, as I've been working on this project and, and talking about my Russian grandmother and talking about it with people, and I feel like every other person I run to into says, oh, my, my grandmother was Russian or Ukrainian or Belarusian also. Um, and 99% of them are from Jewish, Ukrainian or Russian uh, families yeah. in, in Vermont. And I'm just wondering, thinking about uh, Vermont, like what what is it? Like why, why are there so many um, Jewish people from that part of the world in like the counterculture movement, in the peace movement, in like the avant-garde art movement. Like, do you have a theory about that? A lot of theory yeah. about it. Uh, the key to that is the Haskalah and also my Uncle Harry. My mother loved her brother. He came to America first. Yeah. Uh, Harry was part of the Haskalah, and that was a movement that spread through Eastern Europe, a movement of young radicals, young Jewish radicals. Mm -hmm. Let's say these were the hippies uh, and the Jewish population uh, of Russia and Poland in the mid-19th century. Wow. The Haskalah was from the eight, 1850s on. They were touched by Marxism. They were touched by Voltaire. Uh, the uh, that was the enlightenment that spread like fire amongst young Jews, young Jews. I remember I went to a radical Jewish school when I was a kid. Due to this Uncle Harry, uh, we learned Yiddish. Yiddish was not Hebrew. And there was a song, no, a poem we learned uh, and see what you can make of this poem. Arois von der Talmud und Balabatische Schulen, and so on. Out, out on strike, out of the uh, uh, Hebrew schools and the bourgeois schools. Wow. Uh, and this was in the 1930s? In the 1930s, wow. because uh, we were in a under communist influence from my uncle Harry, so he went to this communist influenced Yiddish school, huh. not a Hebrew school, no. but a Yiddish school. Hebrew was the language of the Jewish oppressors, the rabbis, and so on, and the Haskalah was a rebellion against Orthodox Jewry, and it was not uh, not religious. The Haskalah. The rabbis were thought to be sort of racketeers <laughs> taking <laughs> advantage of their huh, fellow Jews. Wow, that's so interesting. So he, your Uncle Harry, was also from this shtetl 
like you said, out yeah, in the middle same of family nowhere. As but he was a radical. He was a radical, yeah. And he came and to he introduced huh? my uh, my birth family to communism. Wow. Uh, and uh, we joined the YCL, the Young Communist League, at an appropriate age. Not my sisters, but my brother and I. And it's interesting how there's that uh, old Jewish division. Girls, um, they, they don't quite make it. They don't quite make it. Yes. And in my family, my dear Maria, yeah. uh, we were five children. Two of us went to college. Mm -hmm. uh, three of us went to commercial school in shorthand typing. You'll work in your office, in an office, till you're 21, and then you'll get married. And then you'll be safe. And guess who went to college? <laughs> The boys. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but that's also amazing. So that your family, like you said, your mother was illiterate, but you became a college professor. Like, that that happened in one generation. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I won't say, God bless America. <laughs> yeah, right. But, the, but that but is God America, bless America for you. Yeah. 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 Wow. And I know my, my focus is on women and... Um, mothers and grandmothers but I'm curious about your father too now that you've talked about your mother a little bit like what what was his was he also from a, a similar background I think so I think so I think so a very poor family very poor but family. my father had uh, families had briefly a store and that would have been a real country store they would have uh, sold kerosene and barley and they don't go well together, by the way. <laughs> but your, so your father, what time did he leave the old country? I don't know you know when, but he was a young man. Uh, I would say he left in his early 20s. And my father, who was such a shy man, not articulate, especially in the presence of my mother, who uh, browbeat him, she would... Uh, and this gets to be personal, and why do I tell you this? She would squelch him whenever he spoke, and uh, when he spoke, she would exclaim, Nadishkeit. Nadishkeit in Yiddish means foolish. And my, my, God. my grandmother was like that, too. I, I'm wondering if there's something Was she really? She coming from a real kind of patriarchal culture... That's like these women, these strong women getting kind of stuck in situations that are hard on them. My, my grandmother was very hard on my grandfather. Really, really. Yeah, yeah. I thought he had such poise and such, uh, you know, he had status. And your father, your grandfather, you know, he suffered for the revolution for a time when he was helping to build that dam. Yeah, I've read. He wrote a little book. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, not a dam, a, a big factory. Yeah. No, I think it was in Magnitogorsk. Magnitogorsk. Yeah. yeah. And he was in the face. I picture him freezing weather, yeah. very little food. He was clinging to the face of this big cement dam, yeah. trying to rivet. So he yeah. had trained himself as a riveter. Yeah. You know that story. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So, 
do you know anything about your father's parents? Uh, they were a little better off than, a little bit better off. They were shtetl Jews, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father hardly spoke. My father was a stranger in the family. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. nobody wanted to talk to him. We would respond to him, oh, this is hot. Do you know the Yiddish story, Gimple the Fool? No. Oh, it brings tears to me, my eyes. I think because of my father, every time I read it, I'm almost just mentioning it. Maybe I'll find it for you, uh, and you should read it because it says something about Yiddish life in Eastern Europe. Uh, I don't know why, what was relevant in that. Well, G- G- yeah, Gimple the Fool uh, was married to a tyrannical woman. And yeah, yeah, Gimple the Fool, he was holy. Everybody took advantage of him, including his wife, who even had a lover almost under his nose, as I, as I recall. Uh, and when when he died. I guess my poor father's life really. That's hard. I'll tell you it another time that this is the plot of the story. But let's go on with yeah. uh, plainer stuff. Well, your father's um, mother. Do you know her name? Like, no. 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 So even that wasn't yeah. wasn't kept in the family. No. The names no. of the They didn't speak about how they went to the toilet or about their parents. Well, nobody speaks about how they go to the toilet. That's true. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. But they didn't say their parents' names. You don't have that. Huh? You know, my mother used to be very... Uh, my father, both of them, were very concerned about our going barefoot in the house. It was a clean house, uh-huh. but I think that's because of memory that in their houses where they grew up, yeah. it was dirt floors, and you didn't want to go right into bed. I don't think they had bed slippers. I don't, I don't know how they managed, but uh, I think that's a carryover for my parents. They were kind of fussy about us. Part of our upbringing was not to uh, uh, walk barefoot on the floor. Helen walks barefoot. <laughs> on the floor. All the time. Our floor sounds yeah. great here either. Yeah, but, yeah. But I don't. I uh, huh. I'm attached to my slippers. Did Did you becoming an anthropologist? Did that have anything to do with your like upbringing or becoming a bread baker? Well, do you Do you is that rooted in your no, family uh, in some way? Uh, becoming a your father had something to do with. 
are becoming bread bakers. And by the way, it's Helen who was a major baker. I yeah. was her assistant. She uh, made the dough, and I had the skill of uh, seeing the bread through the baking. Yeah. Yeah. And so also the skill of bringing the bread to market. Yeah. And uh, and the skill of talking about our bread. We were a phenomenon when we first began uh, baking because uh, there was no good bread. My father had a little rhyme. Espreit und geh gesundheit. Eat bread and you'll walk healthfully. You'll... Uh, you'll be helpful in life. Another thing, if you drop a piece of bread on floor, don't throw it. You kiss it up to God. Immediate sanitation. I think I left something behind. Uh, we were talking about my father. The thing in that Gimple story that uh, broke me up is that when Gimple went to heaven, the whole heavenly choir. I can never get through that. So with the story. We don't have to go on. We can we can come to an end, or I'm is there something else yeah. you would like? To, it's no. kind of a big topic, so yeah. however yeah. much. No, you're a good interviewer, yeah. Maria. It's very moving. All all of our ancestors were kind of in that part of the world, and then here we are now in Vermont, living yeah. together yeah. in a very yeah. different way. Yeah, oh boy. And oh boy, and, and thinking about the ways um, in which you and my parents and our, like you said, with the bread, really shaped the Vermont that we know today. Yeah. I'm thinking about that. Our bread, well, bread is made well, bread, but too. the whole community. It would have come in anyhow. Goddard College, yeah. everything, the yeah. counterculture here, yeah. the peace movement, yeah. Hmm. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bread and Salt. And I'll be back next month um, again on the second Saturday at 9 a.m. with more stories of either my Russian grandmother or somebody else's. Um, I just wanted to end with uh, Jules did indeed loan to me his book, A Treasury of Yiddish Stories. And... I'm going to just read. Here is a quote from Isaac Bolshevik Singer's story, Gimple the Fool. And that's one of the stories he was talking about. But I kind of think he was talking about two different stories. So this one... Just reading the very last paragraph. No doubt the world is entirely an imaginary world, but it is only once removed from the true world. At the door of the hovel where I lie, there stands the plank on which the dead are taken away. 
The grave digger Jew has his spade ready. The grave waits and the worms are hungry. The shrouds are prepared. I carry them in my beggar's sack. Another schnorrer is waiting to inherit my bed of straw. When the time comes, I will go joyfully. Whatever may be there, it will be real without complication, without ridicule, without deception. God be praised. There, even Gimple cannot be deceived. And the other story he pointed out to me was called Boncha the Silent by I.L. Peretz. And let me just find that, page 230. And I'm also just going to read the very end of this story. This is the angels talking to Boncha when he's in paradise. There, in that other world, no one understood you. You never understood yourself. You never understood that you need not have been silent, that you could have cried out, and that your outcries would have brought down the world itself and ended it. You never understood your sleeping strength. There, in that other world, that world of lies, your silence was never rewarded. But here, in paradise, is the world of truth. Here, in paradise, you will be rewarded. You, the judge, can neither condemn nor pass sentence upon. For you, there is not only one little portion of paradise, one little share. No, for you, there's everything. Whatever you want, everything is yours. And then they ask him, they tell him he can have whatever he wants. And he finally says, that what he wants is to have every morning for breakfast a hot roll with fresh butter. Oh, <laughs> 
listening to another episode of Bread and Salt. And that song you just heard was sung by Zenove Schulman. It's called Spazieren seinen mir beide gegangen from, I believe, a 1949 recording. He was a famous Russian, Yiddish, uh, Soviet singer. And the opening song, as always, is called Welcome Dear Guests, sung by the Russian-American group Kostroma, who are based in the Bay Area, and it's from their album Over the Sea. I apologize for my kind of up and down sound quality. I have a lot to learn in the world of podcasting. I'm hopefully going to get some New mics going uh, for the next episode, which should be a little bit better quality. And if you like the show, please rate and review, share it, subscribe to my podcast on Apple or on Substack. And one of these days I'll get some writing in there as well. Okay, thanks and see you next time.